If you remember from last week, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. He lived around 600 BC and he was called by God to present a very challenging message to the people of Israel. It was a message of judgment. It was a burden, an oracle, a burden. It was a message which said that God was raising up an evil people, the Babylonians, for a purpose. An odd, strange, mysterious purpose in some ways to bring judgment on the very people of God. Just to recap a little on the main thesis, I think, of the book is this image which has a dip in it and it starts off at point A and A represents when a person comes to faith in Christ. They come from uh, a lack of belief, a lack of direction, a sense of hopelessness and in their sin and they put faith in Christ and over time, sometimes immediately, but certainly over time, there's a dramatic increase in a whole uh, range of aspects of their life. Certainly, to be born again is to have new life, to have a hope, to be forgiven, to enter into a community where you are encouraged and you're loved. But most of us who have walked the, the journey of following Jesus for any length of time know that it's not a linear uh, um, path of um, upward uh, direction towards heaven uh, and towards uh, uh, euphor euphoric sense of God's presence. There's a dip and it comes down to point C. And at point C, not everything's going so well. Anyone ever been to point C? No. Never. <laughs> we know point C. Uh, the only person who wouldn't put their hand up is a person who's not yet a Christian or the one who's just become a Christian and you're at point B. Praise God! <laughs> Enjoy point B. But life brings its challenges, and all you have to do is read the New Testament, read the life of the Apostle Paul, and we'll see that C brings a crisis of belief. And at C, you can try to live in denial, try to live as though you're just at B. But it's not what the Psalms show us as an example. The Psalms show the people of Israel bringing their complaints before God. And Habakkuk is an example of an honest Israelite. He's bringing his complaint in this book before God. He's saying things aren't the way they should be. One of the options, and we've experienced this in many of our lives, with our friends, with our family, as a church, people can't cope in this place, this crisis of belief. And I guess they check out. They go back to A. They say, I'm out. I can't hold the tension of faith and questions anymore. Last week, we suggested that the ideal thing to do is to hold on for the ride. And sometimes that means going even further down into this point D, which we're calling the dip. In chapter 2, we find three things to do while you're waiting in the dip. Let me read the first three verses. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. 
This is a simple message in a way. What is Habakkuk meant to do while he's grappling with both faith and questions? And I think the first thing we see is he's meant to listen. To listen. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I'll look to see what he will say to me. What is God saying to him, to us, when we're in that place of questioning? We constantly have to remind ourselves that God is a profoundly relational being. Amen? We can forget that so easily. But if you strip back all of history, all of creation, all of the uh, wonderful things that he has done and made, that is God... All the complexity of, of life be, before the, the cosmos began, before he spoke anything into being. In fact, before there's any matter, any matter, any carbon, what do you have? You have a community of oneness, eternal spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not just Father. We don't have a single lonely God. We have eternal spirit in a community of oneness. Hallelujah. We have at the beginning of all things, relationship. Davin prayed about maybe we need to be reconciled. Relationships matter in life. They matter. God is a relational being and the mystery of walking with him in relationship through the grace of Jesus by his spirit is that he does speak and we're meant to listen. But in the white noise of the 21st century, does anybody find that hard to listen to the relational God we know and we are related to through the Son as his children? God speaks. When we are in that place, the crisis of belief, the dip, we have got to listen. How would you expect to hear God? Well, throughout Scripture and certainly in history, and maybe it would be an interesting half-hour discussion here, God speaks with an audible voice to some. I'm interested just to ask. Anyone ever heard what they felt was an audible voice? Okay, there's at least one person. Yeah, a couple of people. God speaks, certainly in our subjective experience here. There are a few of us who can say that, but in the Bible it's there. <clears throat> that God speaks. We know he speaks through his word, the Bible. God inspired multiple authors over a very long period of time to communicate his words to us. And we can open up the Bible and we can hear beautifully, can't we? Intimately, the words of the Master to us. This week we took our son Josiah down to Melbourne. It was a, it was a, it was a tough couple of days. He's been installed in a tiny little apartment. He's... Um, learning about minimalism in a tiny little studio in Melbourne. He hasn't got a soul in Melbourne. He's going down there to study his dream. He's done a degree up here and he finally got into this course he wanted to do. He wants to be a doctor, so he's down there chasing this dream. I tell you what, 
he felt the anxiety that you feel when you've never left home and uh, he's down there and uh, mum and I, mum, his mum and I are trying to be strong for him as well and it's hard those of you mums and dads know what it's like that we're going through so we're talking about call and there's been a sense of call for him to go into medicine no one knows the future but he knows he wants to respond to that call and uh, typically of God we've just talked about call the first thing he gets the day he wakes up in that apartment by himself in his Bible reading is Peter and Andrew are called and they leave everything that's what God does isn't it when you need him to speak if your ears are open he'll say I know exactly where you are hang in there with all the challenges that will come from following a call God will speak through circumstances loudly to us. God will speak through the counsel of the saints, won't he? Someone will come up who knows God and they'll share something just at the right time and you go, wow, you have spoken to my heart. I know that is God. Have you noticed that sometimes when you want him to speak, he doesn't seem to speak? We're listening so hard, <laughs> you can hear a pin drop. And you know, sometimes he's not speaking. He's saying, I did speak, now trust me, in the silence. Amen? I spoke to you, now just walk. Scripture tells us that three times the Apostle Paul asked God to take away what he called the thorn in his flesh. Three times he asked and three times God said no. And why did God allow him to have that thorn in the flesh? So that he would understand that God's grace is sufficient. And he wouldn't learn that unless he had a need. God is hearing our call in the dip. And the question is, are you listening? Clearly the reason maybe for many of us we find ourselves in a particular dip that is unique to our life is for the sake of turning down the volume of all the other noise because in that place I have a feeling that Josiah in that tiny little unit in the north of Melbourne it's quiet all he can hear is his breath and heartbeat racing probably as he feels the anxiety that's there but God's voice is very clear. And that's the, the wonderful part of being in that dip. Stop and listen and write. Number two, write it down. The Lord replied to Habakkuk, write down the revelation. Write down the revelation. Sometimes Christianity can seem very complex, but this is very simple. Listen and write it down. Write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. The reason we write down what God gives us in the dip is so that we can give more glory to God. Amen? That's why we do it. Because if we don't write it down, have you ever noticed that our spiritual enemy who wants to kill, steal and destroy that which is of God and that which is good and good for us, he wants to steal the revelation. So we need to write it down so he can't get it. He can't take it from our memory. We write it down and go, no, God spoke. He gave me that verse. He 
He knows where I am. Have you received a revelation from God in your life that was life-changing and faith-building? But over time, it's faded in the background. That verse that God gave you so many years ago, and we know faith comes by hearing the words of Jesus. When God spoke and we felt it and we were so encouraged, but life has a way of dulling that revelation and we hide it away. I wonder what God might want to bring out to remind you he told you a long time ago. Because our God doesn't change. I love the true story of um, Phil Pringle, who ended up planting C3, Christian City Church, they were down at Brookvale many years ago. And you know what? That label, happy, clappy, tongue-speaking yahoos, like that's, I think they're proud to hold that. But I hope even mentioning the name doesn't you think, make you think, oh, well, that guy's a heretic. I don't think he is. I've got really great mates who are part of that church. And over a long period of time, Phil Pringle and that team have led a church that want to raise up the name of Jesus in the gospel. They do it in a bit different style to us. But I think he's someone who loves Jesus and, and he's had some sort of apostolic calling to lead. When he was about 20 years old, early 20s, he was in New Zealand with his wife and they felt God was asking them to go to Sydney to plant a church. And Phil Pringle tells the story of he's a creative guy, he's an artist. They were sitting in a cafe and they wrote down, they drew the dream campus that they wanted to ultimately be part of building for the gospel, for Jesus. Some decades later, they sat back and looked at this beautiful Oxford Falls campus and he pulled out this old drawing and he held it up and he went, wow. Psalm 37 talked about God will put desires in your heart and if you trust him, he'll give you the desires that he put in your heart. Write down the dream. Write down the picture that God has given and it allows us to give him all the glory. Do you journal? Do you journal sometimes? <laughs> That's me. I come in and out of it. But I know I'm, I think, at my best as a son of a living God when I journal. Because I'm writing down with expectation what I'm seeing happening that I don't understand. Or maybe there's some time that God speaks and you go, wow, I'm going to write that down. Have you found anything like this? I find that if I dig out my journal and, and, and um, I've only got about 28 30 years of adult journaling as a Christian. Some of you have a lot more. But when I pull out journals that are 25 years old, it feels like I'm travelling <coughs> through time. Have you ever noticed that? It's the closest thing you can get to time travel. Because you go back and you read this young bloke, this young woman, who was wet behind the ears and just had some dreams and was trusting God, and they wrote down what they thought they were hearing from God and they had no idea whether it was just the pizza they had last night rumbling in their stomach or what it was, just some subjective response. But when you look back at the wake of your life, when you look back on the faithfulness of God over 25 years, you go, I saw that happen. Amen. I saw that. And you feel like talking to that person, like a time machine saying, 
Don't worry about tomorrow. If I could just tell you, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. He's got enough worries of his, of his own. Trust in God. Cast your cares upon Him because you get to live the life filled with challenges, but you get to live an amazing life. God's good. You can't quite do that if you never write it down. What do you do in the dip? Listen with your pen, with your fingers ready to type. Write it down. And then don't forget to go back and see what he told you and see if it's true. And when it's true, what do we do? We give thanks. We say, God, you're good. I'm sorry for doubting. And then what do you do when you've heard and you, you write? Well, the text says, for the revelation awaits an appointed time you wait. It speaks of the end and will not prove false, though it linger. Wait for it. The revelation, wait for it. It'll certainly come and will not delay. I don't know about that. Sometimes it feels like there's a real delay. Well, this revelation is actually about an event in history. The prophet has been called to give an oracle, a message of doom. To who? The southern kingdom who have watched the northern ten tribes be basically taken off and decimated forever. The southern two tribes have Jerusalem and the temple and they are somewhat cocky. They believe in the inviolability of Zion. It could never fall because this is God's city. And God is raising up the prophets to say, I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to do something you never thought could possibly happen. But you've brought it on yourself. The southern kingdom will fall. The temple will fail. I'm bringing judgment. And that's what is the very real outcome of the prophecy given to Habakkuk. If God has spoken to you, can you bank that? Yeah, you can. You can also bank that it will probably take some time to wait for it to come to pass. To wait. Sometimes we we um, we uh, struggle to get practical. So let's try something practical. So let's wait. Waiting does stuff inside of you, doesn't it? It verges towards frustration, even anger. What did you want to say to me then? We get it, Jonathan. Thank you for that. Move on. You're wasting. I've got stuff to do. We get it. Move on. And we want to say that to God, don't we? God, I'm pretty smart. I think I've cut to the chase. I get where you're heading. Let's move on. And God's like, I don't think you got it yet. No, wait. 
Wouldn't you say over time as you reflect that um, God's like a musician and he has this riff, like guitarists will have riffs, little bunches of notes that sound good and they put them together and when they improvise to a bunch of chords playing, they're playing these riffs and we think they're making it up on the spot but there's a whole bunch of riffs, little things they do. And one of God's riffs, like a guitar solo, is making his children wait, don't you reckon? Like I've heard this one before, God. You're teaching me something through waiting. Would you agree with this little statement? God's delays are not always God's denials. God's delays are not always God's denials. But because he's God, he's allowed to deny us also. Sometimes we think, you're not allowed to deny. You can delay, but don't deny. But sometimes he does. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. Let's think about our biblical friends. Do you think Moses was appointed to listen to the riff of waiting? Yes, he was for 40 years. Joseph, one of the great signposts of Christ himself, sold into slavery. Young man gets given the beautiful coat is the father's favourite, has such a sense of call and destiny. And God says, you've got to learn some stuff. Wait. The Apostle Paul called to preach. How long did Paul wait before he got his first big preaching gig? 13 years. 13 years. Can you imagine? Road to, to Damascus, shining lights, big call. Wow, i got a big call on my life. It's like David when he was anointed. He's got to wait. What do waiters do? And the restaurant. They serve. They serve. If you're a waiter, you're called to be a waiter, you serve. So what do you do in the dip? You listen, you write down, and while you're waiting, you serve. You get involved in what God is doing. You serve. Anyone ever heard of a guy called Erwin McManus? He's a pastor, creative guy from the States. I've lived in a separate world for you guys. No one ever knows any name I mentioned. Erwin McManus um, really affected me as a young guy as I read his stuff. And I remember a, a story he told that encouraged me as a young person in ministry. Uh, I guess with great uh, hopes of being used by God. He tells his story that early in his ministry, um, and he's been very much used, I guess, all over the world in a significant way as he's gone through the decades of his life. God gave him a vision that he would preach to 20,000 people. He's just a young guy. He's running junior high camps for girls, junior girls, Teenage girls, camp ministry. That's a big part of what he was doing as a youth pastor. And out of the blue, he gets what he thinks is a ridiculous vision. He sees himself in front of 20,000 people in a stadium. And he's so embarrassed, he only tells one person. I'm embarrassed to even say this, but I saw this and I felt like it was God. And anyway, 
Um, years went by and he's involved in the camp ministry still. He's done a camp, he's come back absolutely wrecked, but he's signed up to be an usher at this big evangelistic crusade thing that's happening. There's 20,000 people meeting. He's one of the ushers. He comes home from the camp wrecked and he's married and he says, I'm not going tonight. I'm not even going. I'm just too tired. And his wife says, you should go. You need to go. In fact, she says, God's told me you need to go. And so he says, oh, okay. So his story goes, he, he, he goes along and uh, his jeans are all dirty, so he doesn't have anything to even wear. So he ducks into this cheap jeans shop and buys some jeans that are too big. He doesn't have a Bible. He's not thinking straight. And he turns up and he's ready to go as an usher. And uh, this guy who's running the conference comes up to him and he thinks, oh, no, what's he going to ask me? Because I've offended this guy more than once. And the guy that's um, running the conference comes up to him and says, Erwin, the main speaker, the main speaker has had to pull out, I need you to do a talk tonight. You are on in one hour. It starts in half an hour. And he's looking at his jeans. He's looking at, he says, I don't even have Bibles. So the guy who passes him a Bible and says, you are on in one hour. And he starts crying. He says, yes. And he goes over to a, a quiet spot and he's just there holding the Bible and praying. And who walks by but the one friend that he had told the vision to. And he looks up. He says, I'm preaching in the God. <laughs> it's a true story. I heard that story the first time when Erwin McManus was on the stage of the Willow Creek Leadership Summit going out to millions of people across the world. Dallas Willard, one of my heroes, used to always say, find something from God worth saying and trust God to give you the platform to say it. That's not a bad line. So you're waiting to do something with your life. You're waiting for that platform Keep listening, keep writing, keep getting ready, keep finding something worth saying and trust that God will give you the platform. And as we know, it's not just what we say, it could be very much to do. So Habakkuk waited and the revelation came to pass in the next generation. Part of Habakkuk's complaint in the first chapter is God, you're not fair. God, you could do something about the injustice I'm seeing. You could do something and you're not doing enough. And those of us who were here last week, we've read chapter one, we can relate to the pain that we experience in life and the questions we have. And Habakkuk was in that place. But this chapter tells us something about this just and righteous God. In verse four, it says, God responds. To see, he's puffed up. Babylon's puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness. Then he declares these five woes on Babylon and on all like sin. It says, verse 6, the thieves. Habakkuk, you feel like I don't care. You feel like I'm not going to bring justice. But I want to tell you, I am the God of light. I'm the God of justice. Thieves, those who deal in stolen goods, they're going to get what they deserve. Verse 9, the deceivers, those 
who live for unjust gain. They're going to get what they deserve. Violent people, verse 12. Those who inflict physical pain on others, they're going to get what they deserve. Verse 15, the partiers, the hedonistic revelers, they're going to get what they deserve. The idolaters, the worshippers of things other than God, they're going to be punished. We know if we push forward post-Jesus, the punishment was laid upon him for every thief, every idolater, and every hedonistic, desire-filled human like some of us. There's a punishment that God will pour out the cup of his wrath on sin. Some of us are waiting because we've been treated badly by people in life and we want to take that revenge ourselves. And the Bible says, wait, it's not yours to repay, but vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We've got to hand that stuff over to him. Many commentators with Habakkuk would say the key verse in the book is this verse, the righteous will live by faith. Sounds very Christian, doesn't it? Sounds New Testament. Faith. We stop in the dip, we have questions, we have faith. We need to keep walking with faith. We listen, we write, we wait with faith. And we every now and then open up Hebrews 11. And we let the grand retelling of the characters of the Bible inspire us towards faith. We read we can't please God without faith. We can't please him without faith. It's what's required in the waiting, in the dip. Faith. Faith in the goodness of God. By faith we believe the heavens were made. By an eternal, triune, relational God who's always been there. He's spoken. By faith Noah built an ark in the face of all that ridicule and adversity. By faith Abraham believed the promises of God, took the son of promise, Isaac, and was ready to sacrifice him. By faith, the great city of Jericho fell to Joshua when they were doing that ridiculous walking around it. By faith, they walked through the Red Sea in freedom. By faith, some of us in this room have lived through enormous challenges. And some of us can relate to the characters in Hebrews 11. At the end of it, it says, all these people live by faith. And then what does it say? Anyone remember? And none of them got to see the end result. Shoulders drop. (laughs) There's this tension that to the very end says the greatest promise is the resurrection. The greatest promise is Romans 4 when it says Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness because he believed in the God who does what? Raises the dead. The God who calls that which is not something. So as a Christian, we hold on to the God of the resurrection. The one who can do more than what we could ever see in this life. Amen? That's our faith today. That we believe no matter what. This is our last verse, Habakkuk 2.20. What do you do if you still haven't seen and you're waiting and you wonder, I don't know how much I can take. We remember this, Habakkuk 2.20. But the Lord. But the Lord 
is in his holy temple, the Lord is still there. God is still on his throne. Hallelujah. No matter what, no matter what we don't see happen, we get to choose that every day. That's part of the conversation we're having in a cafe with our son going off and feeling that overwhelming sense of anxiety. And what do you say, mate? You've got to have an executive meeting in your own head and heart. And the, the part of you that is scared stiff is utterly legitimate in its feelings, but there's another side that is faith-filled and needs to be the executive officer of your life. And that part of you believes fully and completely that God is in control. And that part of you calls the rest and says, Oh my soul, lift your eyes up to the heavens. I'm going to keep believing. This is what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego uh, said, isn't it? They said, we'll go into the fire. We're going to trust him. And what do they say? They say, we'll go in. And even if God doesn't save us from the fire, we'll still believe. Them's preaching words, aren't they? Okay, we believe we're going to go into the fire. We believe God's going to be with us. And maybe he will make those flames not even touch us. But even if he doesn't, he's still on the throne. And he's still on the throne no matter what we are going through right now. I will wait upon the Lord. I will wait upon the Lord. I will wait upon the Lord. Was anyone blessed last week when out of our faith community four people got up and shared? And you can see that amazing quote on the front of the bulletin that Warren shared. He shared last week that after his, I believe it was his mother and brother. He lost his older son later, but he lost family members. Came back to North Manly and a, a sister, a nun, gave him that quote. And he said, it was burnt in my soul immediately. I've remembered it for 60 years. It's on the front cover. That Jesus is still there on the throne. And I wonder, some of us are waiting. We can relate. We're waiting still. And one of the things we keep saying to Josiah down there, having his experience, is saying, mate, if you can walk through this trusting God, God's going to give you people in life that you can relate to. So hold on to that. So I'm thinking that someone here knows what it's like to wait. And you can pray for other people in this room better than I could. We've come here to be encouraged and as Hebrews says, to be spurred on, to spur one another on. Don't neglect the meeting together on that Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, because you need to come. Some of you have come today because God wants to spur you on. And I've had a go and we've had sung songs and prayed prayers and we've looked at the Bible, but I reckon there's a significant prayer that's not scripted that a waiter will pray for those here who are also waiting. Anyone feel prompted? Heavenly Father, we come before you as a church teaching. And um, we know in our hearts that we're waiting and that in many of our situations it's taken a while 
It's taken a while for you to respond. And while we seek you and we listen to your voice, many times it's just silence. So Father, I ask that Lord, you can take our hearts with the power of your Holy Spirit to understand that while we're waiting, your silence has a purpose in our lives. And that purpose always brings us back to faith and trust. And I'd like to claim 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15 and 17, over Hornsby Baptist Church, or Northern, uh, Northern Life Church right now. That, Father, the battle is not ours, it's yours. That, Lord, you have taken the battle into your own hands. You have a battle plan, you have your timing, and you have a schedule. And hence, we have to wait. And in verse 17 of 2 Chronicles 20, you say very clearly, in just in case we didn't understand the first part, that we are not to fight in this battle. We are to hold our position, stand firm, and watch how you will deliver us. So God, we will watch and we will wait. But we will also take our positions, Father. We'll take our positions of prayer. We'll take our positions of obedience. We'll take our positions of witnessing. And we will fight this war, Father, as we wait on our knees. And we watch how you will deliver us. So Father, thank you, God. Thank you that you are silent, but you are there. Thank you that you are silent, but you fight for us and you fight with the full intention to win our battles, not to lose. And thank you for speaking to our hearts because your word also says in Joshua 1, 9, here is what I commanded you to do. Do not be afraid. Be strong and very courageous for I am with you wherever you go. So we claim this promise upon this church right now for all those who are waiting, myself included, for an answer to our prayer. And we believe that Lord you will deliver. And in the time while we're waiting, you will give us the strength to endure this time of pain. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.